Well, it's a, a blessing and privilege to be bringing God's Word to you this morning. It's good to see you all. And I always appreciate Jill's graciousness uh, in allowing me time from time to time to bring God's Word to you. And yes, as, as Pastor Joe mentioned, we'll be <clears throat> beginning a new study through the book of Colossians. We've recently studied... Uh, uh, the book of Second Peter, and then I've been praying, asking the Lord what uh, what would be the next study. Uh, I've been doing that actually towards the end as we were going through Second Peter, uh, Second Peter as what might be uh, just uh, edifying to us as a church body and relevant to us. And and so I uh, d- decided on Colossians, and so I'm pretty excited about it. And so we'll be beginning the study uh, this morning. And I'm excited about the book of Colossians because it's. It's one of those books that it's rich and heavy in theology. Um, if you ever, if you happen to be in one of the theology classes or uh, systematic theology Bible studies that are, are in the church, you're going to hit Colossians a number of times when you're doing, especially studies about who Christ is and what our position is in Christ. Um, the book of Colossians is rich in practical theology. How are we as Christians supposed to live every day? What does God expect from us in certain situations and how to deal with non-Christians and how to deal with Christians and, and how to deal with sin in our life? All these things are discussed in, in the book of Colossians. And so I've been excited to, um, to go through it with you. I do appreciate it, as, as with any book, it's just as relevant to us today as a church as it was in the first century. And I, and I know that that's true um, with, with all of Scripture, but sometimes it's easy for us to forget and, and displace where we're at in our time frame and our culture with what was going on in the first century or even um, in the centuries before Christ through the Old Testament. But to give you an understanding of, of, of what was going on with the church at Colossae, we'll, we'll give you a little bit of a historical background just so you understand the context. Uh, Colossae was located in Asia Minor. It was in the region of Phrygia, or the, the Roman province of, of Asia. Uh, and, and Luke records uh, Paul going through that area a number of times through the book of Acts, so you might find those terms familiar. But in modern-day terms, it would be in Turkey, south-central Turkey, towards the southern end. And in ancient times, uh, the city of Colossae was a, was a trading center uh, on, the, on the crossroads of the major highway that was going through Asia, through Asia Minor, especially as it went through the major city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was located about 100 miles east of where Colossae was. And because of this, you might uh, assume, and we, we suspect, that, that the, the majority of the population was Greek or Phrygian. But because it was on along the, the crossroads and along the main highway, there was also a large settlement of Jews there. The Jews came there uh, at first after, uh, they, after the Babylonian captivity, uh, during the diaspora, and they settled there. And also Jews, they, they, have, uh, they have a knack for business, and so they would settle areas of commerce there. And because it was a trading area, they settled there. And so, yes, the majority of the, the city was Greek, but uh, they had a, a large uh, population of Jews as well. And so, therefore, as you might suspect, the church makeup of uh, Colossians was that of, of Greek, but also Jew. And, and so, you have, uh, as we'll see as we go through this, you'll, we'll have influence of, of Greek and, and prior pagan beliefs, as well as the struggles to move away from Judaism and the law, and, and things were influencing the church uh, that way as well. 
Despite his previous prominence, though, by by Paul's day, the Romans had redirected the main highway away from Colossae to its neighboring city of Laodicea, which was uh, just a little bit to the north. And so, by Paul's day, uh, it it was actually a city of relatively insignificance. Uh, This population had dwindled, the business operations had dwindled. um, And so, it was really off, in a sense, the beaten path. So much so that even during his missionary journeys, Paul actually never had an occasion to meet there. And so Colossians is unique like Romans in that he is writing a letter to a church that he did not plant and to a bunch of believers that he had never met before. Which is why, in a sense, I kind of like it in applying to us in, in the sense that, you know, Paul certainly didn't plant our church and he has never met us before. But the truths that he speaks of, the truths that he writes and instruction he writes to them, transcend time and culture. It doesn't matter whether they had met Paul before. It didn't matter if he had started the church. What he is giving instruction about is the gospel. And the gospel message is is relevant no matter what time we're in, no matter what culture or country you're in. In fact, the church itself was most likely uh, planted by a, name, a man named Epaphras, who we'll meet this morning. And Epaphras uh, was most likely converted under Paul's teaching while he was uh, in Ephesus for three years. And this is uh, recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 19. Paul was in Ephesus for about three years. It's most likely that Epaphras got saved there and then served with Paul for some time. And so Paul opens up. Uh, this letter, and he, and he begins to give some instruction about, um, about many things. And so we'll turn, if you haven't to already, Colossians chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, as he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we we continue on this morning. Father, we give thanks, Lord, for your word, your word of truth, Lord. We pray, Father, as we we dive into it this morning, that uh, you would help us be uh, attentive to what you might be teaching us through your through your words, Lord, that you would speak through me clearly, Lord, and you would help us to apply all that we, we learned into our life, Lord, that we would be a church that would give glory to you in all that we do, Father. Bless our time this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So we see in the beginning of, uh, of Colossians that Paul begins it in, in a sense in a typical way that we've seen in other letters because it was the typical fashion of, of, of the day when you write letters. You introduce yourself and the first thing he does is affirm his uh, authority and apostleship, but more so he affirms it as coming from the will of God. Oftentimes, Paul had to assert his authority and his apostleship over uh, different teachers, especially false teachers who would come into churches and, and try to undermine his authority. But he was never trying to exert it because of his own abilities, even though he had many, or his own talents. He was always 
uh, first to recognize that where he was and the place that he was within the church and his ministry was all by the will of God and that he had been established by God. In the beginning, he notes also that uh, Timothy was with him. And as we know, Timothy was a, a well-known apprentice of Paul. He had, he had uh, grown up uh, in the teachings of, of Paul and had traveled with him on many missionary journeys uh, through Corinth and Ephesus. And in fact, later in his ministry, uh, Paul would establish Timothy as the pastor of the church, in a sense, the megachurch that was at Ephesus. And he would have been well-known as well. And Colossians is known as one of the prison epistles, and what that means, as you might expect, is that Paul wrote it from prison. He was in Rome during his first imprisonment there, which was more of kind of like a house arrest than his sec- compared to his second uh, time in prison where he was uh, in a deep, dark, kind of dank dungeon in prison awaiting his execution. And so he was, able, uh, he was able at this time to receive visitors, and it's at this time that a man, Epaphras, as we mentioned, came to visit him. And he most likely came from Colossa, and, and he cared about Paul and wanted to see him. And while he was doing, as ministers do, he gave a report about how things were going in, in Colossa, what the, what the strengths were of the church, the things that he was happy about and, and, and rejoiced about in his church. But also, as they got to talking, they also probably mentioned some of the the things that he was concerned about and some of the struggles that that he was dealing with at the church. And we can assume that Paul knew Epaphras well, although Scripture doesn't give us the details. But in verse 7 of the passage we just read, Paul refers to him as a beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ on, on their behalf. And so, because of, of the report that the Epaphras gave Paul, Paul decided to write to the church in Colossae to encourage them and, and, and instruct them on, on things that he knew. I've often thought, how, how, do you, how would you begin a letter to someone that you've never met? A Christian, it might be you know, a Christian, but how would you begin a letter to someone you've never met? What are the things that you might say? You might say things about yourself, this is about my family. Well, this was church business, but I, I, I appreciate what Paul did. What he does right from the beginning is he affirms their common bond and unity through their faith in Jesus Christ. This letter could hopefully or ideally be sent to any church, at least the beginning opening passages. Ideally, any true church should be able to have heard and, and, and know the gospel and that their, their faith is known and that they, we, have, um, we are faithful brothers and sisters. He affirms that the majority of the church was grounded believers and he knows this by the way the gospel has impacted their life. Epaphras had told them of the works that the Holy Spirit was doing within the church and so he knows that this church is faithful and is grounded and that's going to be the focus of our, of our time this morning. Paul knew that they were grounded because of the impact the gospel had on their life. The gospel has natural consequences. The, there, there are effects of the gospel within the church, within the lives of people, that you should expect. That you should expect. With ever, however, meeting anybody or seeing them in person, what are the things that you should expect from their life if you know that they're a Christian? What are they? Well, Paul gives us some insight into these opening verses. And he he doesn't give a lot of instructions, but through the example of what we see from uh, the church at Colossae, it serves to be a testimony to us on how we as Christians, how you as a Christian should be living and how the gospel should be affecting your life as well as the lives of, of, of people around you. 
Each year in April, um, they have this event in Skagit Valley called the Tulip Festival. I don't know, many of you have probably been there. Um, they have tulip festivals. Actually, I was looking into it uh, this week, and there's actually tulip festivals all over the world, uh, many in the United States, many in, in Europe, and all sorts of places. I didn't realize that. I, I guess in my limited knowledge on tulip festivals, it was interesting reading this week. But in the Skagit Valley, each year in April, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, in fact, go up to see tulips. And they go to see them not just because of the flowers, but because they're arranged in a beautiful way. And they're brilliant colors. I don't know if you've ever been there. For those of you who have, you've seen it or have you seen the picture. Oftentimes they're in these long rows of, of brilliant reds or yellows or blues. Sometimes they're in uh, kind of rotating rolls uh, of different colors. Sometimes it's like, you know, I think last year, the year before, they had this kind of pinwheel design where all these different colors were matching up and it was a, a beautiful design. Sometimes they just, it's, it looks beautiful, but it was almost like the farmers say, and check this out, and it's just like a field of all these different colors, like they had leftover seeds, and they just, you know, where should we chuck them? Ah, just throw them over there. But because of the designs and because of the awe-inspiring colors, that's what draws the crowds. But the remarkable thing about these is that the colors of, this, uh, of the Tulip Festival, it's, the designs, it's not a surprise. They're not, they're not surprising to the farmers because they designed them that way. That's what they intended. They, like an intricate painting... They, they come out just as the farmers intended. They're doing, the, the, the flowers are doing just what they were supposed to do. When you plant tulips, if you know what you're doing, then hopefully they grow. It's simple. The work is not simple, certainly. But if you arrange rows and colors, they grow in rows of colors. If you arrange them in a, in a pinwheel design, then they grow in a pinwheel design. Yet the effect of which is awesome for us to behold, and that's why we enjoy such, just like many things in nature. And I'd like to propose to you this morning to consider that the gospel works in much the same way. The effects of it are awesome to behold. They're beautiful and wonderful in your life and in the lives of others. Yet, it should be no surprise. These effects of the gospel should not surprise you. Because the gospel has been designed for this very purpose. In fact, if you don't see intended aspects of the gospel that you should, there's certain expectations that you have when the gospel is preached that if you don't see them, something has gone wrong. And I only say this because I see when I interact with people that oftentimes many Christians are surprised when they see the effects of the gospel. They're shocked. And this becomes so much the case that oftentimes uh, many Christians, maybe even some in this room, have, have almost had, a, in a sense, a pessimistic attitude about the gospel. Okay, I, I know I should share the gospel with my coworker or neighbor. Um, I guess I'll do it. They're not going to believe anyway, but I'll at least put in my time. Okay, I'll invite them to the Christmas Eve service, candlelights. It'll be fun. But, you know, they're not going to believe. My, my family members, you know, they're so hard-hearted. I guess I'll try to maybe give them a gospel track, but it won't do much good. If any of you thought that way, has that been your attitude ever? Sometimes this attitude has is, is infected us so much that we end up not sharing the gospel at all. It's not even necessarily that we are afraid to, even though that might be the case. But it's because we have this attitude of, well, God, you know, okay, I'll do it, but nothing's going to happen anyway. And I'd like to encourage you this morning that if this is you or if you fell into that, to, to radically change your expectations of the power of the gospel in the lives of people as we look to God's word. God has designed the gospel, the word of truth, as Paul refers to it this morning, to have results, and you should expect them. 
What are they? Well, Paul will describe them. He describes them in this opening passage as, as we shall see. And it serves as an example to us. So from our time this morning, from, from these verses, um, are seen four expected effects of the gospel. So that you will be encouraged to share it and also enjoy these effects within your own life. It's meant for both. Four expected effects of the gospel so that you will be encouraged to share the gospel with others and also enjoy these effects in your own life. And the first one is this. Faith. Faith. An expected result of the gospel is faith. People are going to believe. People are going to believe. Following his his opening greeting about who he was in Timothy, beginning in verse 3, Paul expresses a sincere gratitude for the faith of the Colossians. He says, we always thank God for you, verse 3, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul did not know these people. He never met them. But he had heard of their faith. Epaphras told him, Epaphras, since we've heard of your faith, Epaphras has let us know. And because of this, Paul says he frequently prayed for them. And Paul was a man of prayer, also an example for us all. But he rejoiced and gave thanks for their faith. And how did the Colossians' faith come about? Well, someone, most likely Epaphras, showed up there, preached the gospel, and they believed. It was simple. Simple as that. Now, the process might have been a little bit harder, but when you dig down to its roots, what happened? The gospel is preached and they believed. In fact, Paul extrapolates in verse 5, if you look down. He says, concerning the the gospel, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, indeed as is in the whole world, bearing fruit, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul notes that they didn't just simply hear the Word of God. They understood it. They understood it. And the the Greek word here, epigonosko, it it means to to strongly comprehend something, to understand it, to have a grasp, to know exactly. They didn't just kind of hear it and, and fall on deaf ears. They understood the grace of God. And what is this grace? That they were sinners. That they had fallen short of the glory of God and they could not earn heaven on their own. And they needed God's grace. And this grace came through the the works, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they understood that. And and once you understand that, faith comes about. Faith comes about. Paul is not surprised at their faith. That's what the gospel message does. You should expect it to bring faith. God has designed the gospel with the working power of the Holy Spirit within the heart of an individual to stir up, to penetrate their heart, to bring them to a place of repentance. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, okay, I see what you're saying, James, but wait a minute. I've shared the gospel with people many a times and no one has come to faith or very little people have come to faith. And wait, doesn't the Bible say that men are spiritually dead? Doesn't it, doesn't it somewhere in 1 Corinthians say that the natural man cannot understand the things that are spiritual? Yeah, that's all true. That is all true. Then you might say, well, then what do you mean? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we be surprised if someone actually does come to faith if that's the case? No. Not at all. Quite the opposite, actually. Don't be discouraged if you preach the gospel and they don't believe. Don't be discouraged. For the very reasons we just mentioned. Because man is spiritually dead and they cannot perceive 
the things that are spiritual unless God enables them. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew seven fourteen, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. All of this is correct. In fact, salvation is a divine act. People say we don't see miracles today. That's wrong. In fact, every time a Christian, somebody turns and becomes a Christian, that in itself is a miracle. Somebody who was dead has been brought to life. There's no debating this. And that's why we rejoice and we give thanks like Paul does in the beginning of this letter. When we see someone turn and, give, uh, and, turn and place their faith in Christ Jesus, we rejoice because a miracle has taken place. But it's a miracle that God says will happen. And therefore, we should not be surprised, but expect it. What do I mean? Well, consider Christ's death and resurrection. All during his ministry, his physical ministry, he was telling his disciples, I'm going to die. And sometimes it was a little bit veiled, you know, the sign of Jonah, you know, just like Jonah was in... The, the, the belly of the fish for three days so the son of man will and he's always talked to him even one time he's telling Peter, he tells them that he's going to die and Peter kind of pulls him aside and says Lord what's all this what's with this death stuff you're always talking about it's kind of discouraging us we don't get it you know and, and, and he's, he's trying to tell them so much so that finally in Matthew 20 18 and 19 he says to them I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and they're going to mock me and they're going to flog me and I'm going to be crucified but then I'm going to be raised up again on the third day. He could not have been more clear. And yet, what happened when he was crucified? They're shocked. They're shocked and dismayed. And I don't know if you're like me, sometimes you're reading it and you're like, were you not listening? He told you. He, he, he told you for your own good. When Christ was raised from the dead, should they have worshipped God and, and, and been in awe and glorified Him? Yeah. Should they have been surprised? No. No, because God said this miracle is going to happen. And the effects of the gospel are the same. You should expect faith to result for when, after you preach the gospel. Although the way is hard, just as Jesus said, He also said, all, the Father, all who the Father has given to me will come. And those who come to me I will by no means cast out. That's John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus has said, all, the Father that's going to, all those who the Father is going to drop, they will come. You're going to preach the gospel and people will believe. You should expect them to do so. Salvation is a miracle, but it's one that God has promised will happen. After all, we're here, aren't we? If you're a Christian here, that means it has occurred just like Jesus has said. So when you go out to preach, when you share the gospel, expect them to believe. Have this hopeful expectation that they are going to hear the word of truth and that the Spirit is going to do a work in their heart so that they will come to salvation. And then you pray that the Lord's will will be done. And if they do and if they don't, well, that's not in your hands. But God has said, go out and preach and make disciples with the implication that there's going to be disciples to be made. Not every seed the farmer sows bears fruit, but he expects it to. He knows it's not, but when he, when he throws it, he's expecting that each seed that lands is going to bear fruit. And we should live in the same way. And the seed that we bear this way comes by preaching the gospel. Paul says in Romans ten seventeen, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It comes by hearing the gospel. That's what an expectation of the gospel is. Faith. Faith.
expect faith to happen. And if it doesn't, well, we give God the glory, but that's what He's called us to do. The first expectation, the expected effect of the gospel is faith in Christ. The second is this, love. Love. Verse 4, Paul goes and he says that we give thanks when we pray for you to God the Father. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul continues and he says he's grateful for their faith and for their love. These were genuine believers who had been radically changed by the gospel. And a natural expected expectation, effect of this is love. Love is the flagship characteristic that should characterize all of us as Christians. Jesus himself said this, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. It's not optional. It's mandatory. If you're a Christian, then you will have love. Right? It's an expected effect. And so as Paul is writing to these Colossians, he's not surprised that they have love for one another. He's rejoicing in it. He thanks God for it. But of course, they're Christians. Of course, they're going to love one another. It's not a burden. It's a natural effect. If you have faith and love Christ, then you should, have, then you should love others who do as well. It just makes sense. In fact, Scripture says that those who don't have love aren't actually Christians at all. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. An expected effect of the gospel in the life of someone is faith and then love. Love for others. In the, uh, in the 18th and 19th century, um, British, shoulders, uh, British, British soldiers were uh, famously recognized by their uniform across the world. They were known as the Redcoats. We have that in our, our you know, history classes during the Revolution. They were the Redcoats. And this term was not one of dishonor or mockery. It was one of, 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 that they were proud to have. In fact, if you were a British soldier, then you wore the uniform, wore the Redcoats. They wore it around proudly. It probably wasn't the best camouflage. But they wore it. It was one of respect and they were proud to wear it. If you're a Christian, you have a uniform as well. You have a uniform as well and it is one of love. And it should be something that is recognized across the world. When they see you, just like if somebody saw someone wearing a red coat, that's a British soldier. If they see you, and they, they should see love pouring forth from your life. So they recognize you right away. That's a Christian. There's something different about that person. Love is an expected effect of a life transformed by the gospel. If you're weak in this area, seek to grow in it. In fact, you know what? Loving one another is one of the biggest privileges and blessings that we have as a church, isn't it? Isn't it a privilege and blessing that after the service, when we have the food, we interact with one another, we care for one another, we ask about how each other is doing? In times of crisis, isn't it a blessing when, when a Christian comes to help you out and provide food in need or a ride if you need it or prayer? And is it not the same privilege to help someone? When you see someone in need, it's like, man, God, I love you. You've helped me so much. I, I, I take joy in loving your people. It's an expected effect of the gospel. 
And we see this as an example that we, from the Colossians. He says that they, they love all the saints, not just those in their church, but any Christians who happen to be passing by or needed to stay with them. It was a characteristic of them, and it should be a characteristic of us as well. Expected effects of the gospel, faith, love. The third is this, hope. Hope. Paul says that he gives thanks for them since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The the love of the Colossians was driven by their hope. Was driven by their hope. And this hope was revealed and grounded in the gospel message. There's no hope apart from the gospel. Without believing in the gospel, without having the gospel, we are lost and without hope in this world. That's what scripture says. We are enemies of God and lost in our sin, but through the message of the gospel, through the works of Jesus Christ, we have hope. Reconciliation with God, a relationship with God, is possible now. Hope is the anchor of our faith. Hope is an expected effect, expected characteristic for every Christian. And Paul here, he's not speaking of an attitude of hope, which is also something that is is good to have. But here he's speaking of an objective hope, a, a true, something that is a reality, no matter how you feel about it. He says that this hope, he said this hope is uh, in heaven. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And what is the difference? Well, a subjective hope is kind of like, I hope it doesn't snow this Sunday because I'm preaching. Or, I hope I get that job that I applied for. I hope that I get into that school. You have those hope and you have an outlook or attitude of that you hope, but the reality is you don't really know what's going to happen. It may or may not. An objective hope is, it's... It's there. It's a reality. No matter what you think about it, whether you don't want it or you want it, it's there. It exists. It's present. And that hope drives the way you act, think, and feel. This hope is based on something guaranteed. It's laid up. It is existing at this very moment in heaven. And what is it? It's Jesus Christ. He's sitting right now on the right hand of the Father, on the throne, reigning. And those who believe in Him have the promise to be with Him for eternity, that their sins will be forgiven, and they have a life with Him. This hope can never be taken away. The promise of grace and mercy and forgiveness, no more sorrow, eternity with our great God and King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's there. It's as, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, a living hope which is where our church gets its name. We have a living hope. It's living, breathing. It is there. It cannot be taken away no matter how you feel. So I do not say, do you have this hope if you're a Christian? I say, do you remember this hope? Because the hope is there. Oftentimes, the having isn't the difficult part. The difficulty lies in remembering that you have it. And then living according to it. That's the challenge, isn't it? Makes me think of a, a precious or treasured gift that you might have received, maybe on a, a Christmas time or an anniversary or some different occasion. And, and when you receive it, it's precious to you and you enjoy it. You put it up somewhere, you spend time, you show it to your friends, you, you, you use it. 
But then after time goes, this, this uncommon, precious gift, because you see it so much, becomes common. And you forget to appreciate it for what it is. And, and oftentimes, maybe if you're like me, when I was a young boy, those, those wonderful toys and things end up under the bed or in the closet or in the garage. It's easy for us to do this with this hope that we have. We, it is precious, to be sure. It is a treasure, to be sure. But we hear about it. We, it's common to us, so we forget to let it drive the way we think, act, and live. And it becomes common. Don't let that happen. And if it has, get it out of the garage. Clean it up. And make it a prized possession to you. I encourage you, remember this hope. Cling to it. Cling to the gospel. Delight in it. Let it influence your actions. Because that's what it's meant to do. The gospel message, once you believe, is meant to give you hope. That no matter what happens in life, tragedy or blessing, that this life is but a vapor and we have a hope of living in heaven for eternity. Expected effect of the gospel, faith in your life. Love, hope. And then finally, Paul says, fruit. Fruit. Looking back in verse 5, Paul says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth. Paul here, now in a sense he's giving a summary statement of how the gospel has impacted their life. Faith, hope, love, those are all in a sense fruits. And he's giving a summary of how that not only impacted the church there, but how it was impacting churches all across the world. In fact, he says it's gone out on the whole world and is in bearing fruit. And he's speaking in hyperbole here. But we get his point. I mean, the, at, at Paul's day and time, hadn't reached every uh, part of the planet. But what the gospel had done was pretty remarkable. I mean, it started in this small area of Jerusalem, relatively insignificant as far as the Romans were concerned, out on the outer edge, amongst a small sect of, of religious people called the Jews. As far as world, the world and politics and different religions were concerned, it was irrelevant. And God had taken that... And it now had penetrated into all the major areas of the Roman Empire. Rome, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. The gospel is going forth in all the myriads of towns in between. Permeating, growing, expanding. Because that's what God designed it to do. The gospel is unstoppable. You can try it. You can try it. And oftentimes, the countries that try it see it grow all the more, don't they? That's what it's meant to do. Now, what fruit is, is Paul talking about here? Well, I think first, certainly, conversions. That kind of ties in with the first one. People are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and growing. But I think it also means a life change, a radical life change in the lives of people who were from a, a pagan culture, from a pagan religion, and their lives have been transformed into the glorious... were being transformed into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. And fruit came when they heard the grace of truth. And what is this grace? Well, he he, he expounds upon a little more, actually, if you you just flip over a page in in chapter 2. Beginning in, in 13, Paul talks about this grace that God has shown us. 
And he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is grace. We were dead in our trespasses. Our rap sheet of how we have broken God's law was longer than we even care to think about. And yet God paid the penalty through His Son and has forgiven you. When you understand that and you understand all that God has done for you, your life can't help but radically change. Chiefly because at the moment of salvation, God promises to indwell you with His Holy Spirit. It's God that is doing the changing in your life. And what are the results? What are the fruits of these spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits that should be expected from the gospel when you believe. Does that mean you're going to be perfect in all these? No. Does that mean you're never going to fail and completely blow it at times? Well, certainly not. It's a lifelong process. But should there be some sort of semblance of these being reflected by your life? Yes. Yes. Because that's what the gospel does. Through the Spirit, it transformed us. If you call yourself a Christian, but you have no semblance of fruit, Christian fruit or characteristics in your life, or if you have no desire to grow in them, something's gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. You either don't really believe and you, you haven't really understood the gospel of truth or you've quenched the spirit in your life and its desire to work through you. You're either not a believer or you're a very weak and immature believer and your salvation is, I hope, I hope, instead of I know. Paul will speak more about this fruit later and so we'll... We're just touching on it here. But I'd like to take this opportunity to challenge you here as you, as you listen. Do you see the effects of the gospel in your everyday life? And you know yourself well. Do you see these effects of the gospel in your life? Do other people see the effects of the gospel in their life? Like, like seeing a British soldier, will they turn and recognize there's something different about you, even from afar, even if they've never met you? These are good questions to ask yourself regularly as, a, as a, just a means of, to remind you to, and to motivate you to grow and bear fruit for the glory of God. So Paul closes and he, he writes to the church and he asks them, or he, he lets them know that he's praying for them, but he affirms the marvelous effect of the gospel on their lives. The effects of the gospel is a miracle. It's an awe to behold. And for those of you who have seen someone who wasn't saved and now is now saved, it is a cause for us to rejoice and give thanks to God. But it's not surprising. Because God said it's exactly what it is intended to do. The gospel is intended to bring faith, love, hope, and fruit in the lives of people. Do you see these effects in your life? They're meant to be enjoyed. They're not a burden. You're going to leave the house saying, oh, I've got to go out and love today. Man, this hope is really dragging me down. No, they're a blessing and a privilege. And when you preach the gospel, whether they believe or not, that's not up to you. But you sow the seed with hopeful expectation that this person is going to be saved. Because that's what the gospel does. 
through the power of the Spirit, it saves people. You have the hopeful expectation that it will penetrate their heart through the power of the Spirit and make them wise for salvation. Then you just pray, Lord, your will be done. And you be glorified. And glorify yourself through me. This is how Paul opens his letter to people who he has never met. He establishes that they have had the gospel and the effects of the gospel are clear to them. And then as we'll see in in our time together to come, he gives them some instruction on how to take this fruit and, and, and hone it and how it should play out in your everyday life as you interact with one another. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks, Lord, for your kindness to us. Lord, we give thanks for the gospel which has saved our souls. Lord, a gospel founded on the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who became sin on our behalf, Lord, though he knew no sin. Father, I pray that we would be people who have hopeful expectations of the the impact that the gospel can have. Lord, the, the very impact that your word has said it will have. And I pray that uh, you would use us as wonderful, as wonderful agents for the gospel. Lord, that we would sow many seeds and look forward to the, to the fruit and produce that you yourself will bear, Lord. That you would get all the glory. I pray for each of us here also, Lord, that we would enjoy and feel the effects of this marvelous gospel in our own life every day. Lord, that we would be people who the world recognizes as different. And that we would delight in one another as we delight in you. We give thanks, Lord, for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.